Bibles. In just a moment, we're going to begin reading from Mark chapter 10, verse 17. If it, you're new or it's been a while, we've been working through Mark's gospel verse by verse. And this is actually a part two of a sermon, and, and you're welcome to look at our website and listen to the first part, although I'm going to do a brief review. But the reason why then we're talking about this today is this is where we're at. So just keep that in mind. All right, verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I've kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Peter said to him, we have left everything to follow you. I tell you the truth, Jesus replied. No one who has left home or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, and with them persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Let's bow together, please, as as we seek the help that we need. Father, we we have no other argument. We have no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. So as your word is taught, may your written word be our rule. May your Holy Spirit be our teacher. May your greater glory be our supreme concern. Of course, Father, I am very, very weak and very, very sinful. You are neither. You are good, you are merciful and forgiving, and you are powerful. And you and you alone, Father, can do the impossible. Therefore, we would ask that right now you would reign in this room. For Jesus' sake, amen. Well, it probably goes without saying that things are easier generally speaking, for the wealthy. And you don't probably need much of an explanation for that. Wealth opens lots of doors. Position, leisure, relationships, investment, influence, education, travel, politics, and even even privacy. If you just want to be alone and you have the money, you can do that. So almost every area in life finds that doors are open much more easier when one has wealth. And an interview with the very, very wealthy couple, Bill and Melinda Gates, right? They're billionaires. The interview coincided with um, a February 10th interview, which 
was um, the date they put their public letter where every year now, for the past 10 years, they kind of say, it's basically like a Christmas letter in February. Here's our family. Here's what we're doing with all the money that we have. And the interview, Melinda Gates was talking, and this is what she said. She said, it's not fair that our wealth opens doors that are closed to most people. So you should appreciate her honesty, right? Wealth opens doors. And yet, Jesus tells us here in Mark's gospel, there's one door. It's actually the most important door, which wealth cannot open. In fact, it actually gets in the way. And it would make you wonder, right, if we believe the words of Jesus here, why would we ever pursue and protect wealth with such commitment and for some people, like, God-like devotion to it? Because, you see, there is absolutely no escaping. There's no way around the strong sense of danger Jesus is putting forward to those who are rich, and we could equally say for those who want to become rich. Now, I want you to think with me. The forms of wealth, the amounts of wealth will change over time. Different for some people, to be sure. Nevertheless, the danger remains the same. Riches, its accumulation, its pursuit, it is an enemy of the abundant life that Jesus wants us to live because it weakens our dependence on God. And as in the case of this rich young man, it can move us away from God. In fact, far away from God. So because that's true, Jesus says, verse 23, if your Bible's open, you'll see it, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now, some of you may recall way back when, when we were studying Luke's gospel, quite a few years now, the words of Jesus, he he was preparing his followers of what it would actually mean to follow him, right? He's a leader. He tells us how to follow him. And in Luke 6, Jesus says this, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now. You'll be satisfied. He goes on to say, but woe to you who are rich. You're like, what? Yeah, woe to you who are rich because you've received your comfort already. Woe to you who are well fed now for you will go hungry. And in both statements by our Lord Jesus Christ, what he does, he shares God's surprising vision of his people in the world and he turns the values of the world, wealth and all that stuff, the things that matter most to the world, he turns it on its head. And basically, what God says is so counterintuitive to basic human nature. So he says, Jesus, God's blessing on, is on his people rest when they're poor, when they're hungry, when they're weeping, more persecuted, more in, in that section. In a word, the needy, more fully in light of the gospel, those who live with the fallout of being my follower, hence sometimes poverty, sometimes hunger, and those who recognize the depth of their depravity, before a holy God, a debt they can't pay, in other words, poor, those are the people who know my blessing. So in this fallen, sin-ravaged world, the blessing of God often looks like poverty and brokenness, and of course, the opposite, wealth, its accumulation, its maintenance, which appears like a blessing, at least on the surface, actually could be a curse. Why? Again, verse 23 Wealth makes it really hard, verse 23, to enter the kingdom of God. And that confirms what we said last time when the disciples had such shock over what Jesus said to the rich young ruler and how Jesus responded. The disciples, verse 24, are shocked. They double down, verse 26. They're even more shocked. Why? Remember, they they were under the mindset that wealth was a sure sign of God's blessing. 
wealth was a sure sign that they were doing right. And therefore, as a byproduct of their good works, because they're doing right, God was giving them great wealth. That's how God works, they thought. A few weeks ago, Nicole and I were eating outside when it was warm (laughs) at a place. And we just got word from a couple in our congregation where the husband was retiring. And just a few months away, the wife was going to retire and they were going to be together. And so we were, you know, thinking about that. And along comes this man who lives in our neighborhood who we know is basically an atheist. And we said hi to him because we communicate with him. And he said, we said, you know, the, how's it going? He goes, yeah, I'm going to retire in a little bit. And in a couple of months, my wife's going to retire too, and we're going to be together. Now, I want you to get the picture. There's a people who are loved by Jesus Christ, saved by his grace, just a few months away from all that awesomeness, supposedly. And then the other guy doesn't love Jesus, doesn't give a rip about anything, and he's just a few months away from all that awesomeness. It makes you think, right? So what Jesus does here is he shows them in this little question and answer session with the young man, they're going to need to rethink that policy. It's not a good policy. So we said last time, verse 17, after salvation comes, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The young man was given three opportunities by Jesus. Number one, verse 18, he was told by Jesus, look, no one is good but God. He didn't understand that. Most people don't because most people flatter themselves by saying, look, we're not as bad as the next guy. And I'm certainly more committed to do more right than the next guy. So what happens is we become like the Pharisee in the the little story that Jesus told in Luke 18. I thank God, I thank you God that I'm not like other men, especially that guy over there, the tax collector. And in that, when we do that, we disobey the teaching of Paul by Paul saying, judging ourselves by ourselves or judging ourselves compared to others and therefore we are not wise. For we think goodness is a relative term, relative to the standard of the world, relative to our own opinion, relative to our comparison of other people. So we think when we do that, hey, we're pretty good. But loved ones, God does not judge us by the standards of this world, does he? Nor does he judge us in relation to others. No, God judges us by his holiness, by his standard. Be ye holy as I am holy. Therefore, he doesn't lower the bar to accommodate our rebellion. He just magnifies his grace. So in his son, who will go to the cross to pay for all that rebellion. The rich young ruler completely missed that. He thought he was good compared to everybody else. He wasn't. He also missed the second opportunity. He saw himself in the mirror of God's law, verse 20, and he says, oh, it's okay, Jesus, I'm wonder boy. I've kept this all since I was a little lad. This is easy. This is an eternal life piece of cake. Which was a direct challenge to the very reason why Jesus was sent into the world to begin with. Jesus was sent to die for our inability to keep his law. Both tablets. Tablet 1, tablet 2. Listen to your Bible. This is the Old Testament. There is no one who does good. Psalm 14. Psalm 53. All fallen away. Together all have become corrupt. There is none who does good. Not even one. And the rich young ruler, who was probably a synagogue ruler, he should have known his own Old Testament, especially if he was a leader in the synagogue. But what does he do? He ignores the plain teaching of the Old Testament, and he remains unchanged. He remains unchanged because of his goodness, perceived goodness. And of course, his final chance is when Jesus gives him the opportunity to see his idol, which was his riches, smash his idol, so he might follow Jesus and enjoy the promise of eternal life. However, he wouldn't. 
So he couldn't sing along with Luther's song. Remember, a mighty fortress is our God, which has the line, the very last verse, let goods and kindred go, right? Let your wealth and family go. He couldn't do that. He couldn't get out a sheet of paper and, and basically run the numbers. Okay, let's see. I'm going to lose everything now for Jesus in 40 years. Let's say I'll live another 40 years, lose everything, but I'm going to have eternal life with God forever. Uh, I think I'll keep everything now. And so, what happens? Verse 22, do you see it? His face fell. In other words, he is wounded deeply, deep emotional pain because of the truth that Jesus gave and his attachment to wealth. He loves his money like his money's alive. He walks away, still dead in his sin. And of course, Jesus lets him. And remember now, the key, what Jesus was doing here was trying to drive this young man to see that he was in need of a savior. He was in need to cry out for mercy. Jesus, I cannot do this. I can't give up everything. You're going to have to help me here. I'm going to have to have your mercy. To which Jesus would have replied, what? Of course you can't do it. That's the whole point. No one can. And of course I'll help you. That's why I've come into the world. There is no spiritual sickness that I cannot mend. No brokenness I cannot fix. Verse 21, I love you. And if you're tracking with me, Maybe the bell's going off in your head. Oh, so we are like the rich young ruler in our self-righteousness? Yes. And we on occasion rely on our goodness and we have idols Jesus could point to right now and say smash it and we would not smash it? Yes. Okay, so therefore we need a savior, savior who will stand in our place because he never had an idol. So he saves us from that sin, and he dies on behalf of us for that sin, and he gives us new life that we might have power to battle that sin, and with that power, we will keep on smashing old idols, and the new idols, which will come up, will smash them as well until our very last breath. Yes, that is it. Everybody gets chocolate, if you agree with me, okay? And by the way, look at your Bible. It's not by accident. That the very next section which Mark gives us is Jesus' prediction of what? Do you see it there? Of his death. Of his death. The very remedy which this young man needed, and I needed, and you need, and maybe for some of us here, you need right now. You need the remedy of the cross. Because who among us on any given day would attempt to stand before God dressed in our own goodness? Who would dare do that? And if it's true, that when we add anything to Jesus as a requirement for our happiness, then that thing is an idol, and it is true, then what hope do we have? What hope do we have apart from the perfection of Jesus Christ, the grace of God applying that perfection for us so that when we stand against the holy standard of God, we have the fully clothed clothes, if you would, of Jesus. We're fully clothed by Jesus. And because of his perfection, then, praise God, we are perfect before the eyes of the one who basically matters most. God. God. Okay, so if your Bible's open, what you'll see is right after the rich man walks away, sad, Jesus looked around and taught, right? Verse 23, first point, Jesus looked around to teach. He looked around, and by the way, Luke's gospel tells us that at the exact time the young man was leaving, Jesus began to teach. So the guy was probably in earshot, is my guess. And he says, again, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And we've been saying the disciples, verse 24, are stunned. Jesus doubled down. 
and said, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. Children, that's a good sign that he says children. Why? Well, look at verse 15. Because Jesus said, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child, they're going to never enter it, right? So there's good there. Now, when you look at verse 24, some translations do what the NIV does and gives that little text note there. If you just trace your eyes to the bottom, you'll see that little line they add, for those who trust in riches. But some translations do not, right? So, so some manuscripts, original manuscripts are written one way and some are written the other. So wh- what do we do? Well, we toss our Bibles away. No, just kidding. <laughs> Sorry. Which one's right? Is Jesus saying in his second statement, again, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God? Or is he saying, as the NIV says, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God? Which one's right? Well, to be honest, I'm not sure. But I'm also sure that it doesn't really matter in light of all that we've been saying and everything that we've been reading thus far. Why? Well, when Jesus told his disciples that it's difficult for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of God, he was pointing to a truth that applies to everyone, a principle, if you would, that applies to everyone. It's the message of the gospel. It's the message of the epistles. It's the message of the entire Bible. It's hard for a mere man or a woman to enter life with God. Remember, Jesus talks about the narrow road, and often we interpret that like morality. No, it's worse than that. It's our inability to even get on the road and walk the narrow road. So we have to be saved by God's grace from beginning to end. Indeed, unless God changes our hearts, we remain dead in sin, unable to resuscitate ourselves, unwilling to turn from our selfish interest and follow Christ. Therefore, apart from God's grace, we're just like this rich young ruler. So we may be poor and old and grumpy. We may be strong and beautiful and lovely. We might be sweet and nice and miserly. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. We sing the song here, Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch, right? A wretch. What is a wretch? I had to find that out for some reason this week. Well, one of the definitions was a scalawag. A person of despicable character. I said, well, I dug a little deeper, and the word wretch is the old English word for reka, which means a banished person. Now think Bible here. Banished person. Banished from the presence of God because of our sin. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a banished person like me. I was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Who did all that? Who did all of it? God. And so here Jesus gives a hard saying to the disciples. Boys, let me tell you how hard it is for the mere man, a mere woman, to enter the kingdom of God. Verse 25. You see it there? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples are like, okay, Jesus, thank you for clearing that up. Let's go on. No, what do they do? Verse 26. They were even more amazed. Shock. Just like they were a moment ago. It's a great illustration, by the way, but if you think it through, it's kind of disgusting, isn't it? You got a needle and you got a camel. Think it out for a second. Still, after the hard saying comes the obvious question. What's the obvious question? Verse 26 Who then can be saved? And notice they do not draw that question to Jesus, they give that question to each other. Remarkable. Who can be saved? Who can inherit eternal life? 
they're starting to piece this all together. Who can enter the kingdom? Which is one of the great questions of the Bible. We sang the song. It's ironic. We sang the song. Can a leopard change its spots? Jeremiah's question. Can a leopard decide one day, you know what? I think I'll be a zebra. Can they do that? Talk to your kids. They'll tell you it's impossible, right? So then can a person, can man as man, who Ephesians 2 says, dead in sins, Colossians 2 as well, a person who's unable to make themselves spiritually alive so that they need to be born again, can they say suddenly, you know what? I think I'll be a Christian today. I'll give birth to a whole new me. Can we do that? Well, we can if salvation, any part of it, is a human achievement, right? And, and by the way, if any part of our salvation was a human achievement, when we came together as a body, we would have to take a few moments in public worship to honor ourselves, wouldn't we? A little part of that with me, I'd take a moment, I just want to honor myself for my commitment to do... We've got to think these things through. Listen to your Bible, Revelation 7, one of my favorite passages in the whole of the Bible. Salvation belongs to our God. Here's a setup. John writes, After this I looked, and before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation and tribe and people and language, standing before the throne. And before the Lamb, they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God. In the Greek it reads like this, Salvation God. It's great. Salvation belongs to God. Jesus, in John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws me. Jesus, again, in John 17, all you, Father, have given me. Now, this is a spoiler alert here. If you're in a home group and you haven't finished the last lesson, part of the lesson was this. It's Titus 3. And Paul wrote at the very end, be kind and considerate to everyone. Be, be gentle to the whole human race. Okay, Paul, why? Well, here's his argument. Because you were once like them. And you were changed. Okay, how was I changed, Paul? Listen to your Bible. When the kindness and love of God appeared, he saved you. Not because of the righteous things you've done. Not because of some kind of merit-based work. We're going to get serious with this God stuff. No. You were saved by God's mercy. The word there is pity. God took pity on us and he saved us. And Paul goes on through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. Then he says being justified by God's grace because salvation, all of it is received from God. Not achieved by man in any way. That's why there are people who right now think, listen, I'm a Christian because I've given intellectual assent to the truth. And I'm doing my best. So to them, Christianity is just like a self-improvement project. Right? They said it could be done, and I did it. And I keep doing it. Religious things, say religious things, and outside everything seems fine, but inside. 1 Corinthians 3, which only man and God knows the heart, inside it is not fine. I signed a card. I walked down the aisle. I signed the list. I shed a tear. Do my best to tra- change my spots to stripes. And the Bible's like, it cannot be done. Romans 1, Romans 5, Romans 8. Man by nature, women by nature have sinful minds which are hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God's law. And Paul says, nor can it do so. Romans 5, original sin renders all of us unwilling to pursue God in Adam. Therefore, as 
Nature says we resent the intrusion of God. We do not like the order of God, so we want to make a Christianity of our own. And of course, many people have. That's why when someone gives a testimony and they say like, well, listen, I used to feel really bad about myself and now I feel really good about this myself after I joined this place. Okay, but that's not enough. That is not enough. Jesus is making the point, what possible chance does a man or woman have to inherit eternal life apart from me? Answer, none. None. Verse 26, hence the question of the disciples. Okay, then who can be saved? Who can inherit eternal life? Who can enter the kingdom? And friends, it's impossible to enter the kingdom. That's where they were at, at that. Salvation is impossible. Consequently, what does Jesus do? Verse 27, Jesus looked at them. And by the way, the same word, 21, 23, and 27, verse 21, verse 23, verse 27, the word look is that is gaze. So this is like love. He just gazed at them. With man, this is impossible, guys. Stay with me, but not with God. With God, all things are possible which is one of the greatest definitions of grace ever given, and it is given by Jesus. That God's grace does for us what we cannot possibly do for ourselves. He overcomes our sin, puts in a substitute, and he leads us safely home. Again, what is impossible to do for every created human being is well within the realm of possibility for the creator God. Remember Ezekiel 36, if you know your Bibles, remember 36? The foretelling day of the promise of God, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you'll be clean and I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit on you and I will, I will, I will, right? Remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh to follow my decrees and keep my laws. And remember that was the background of John chapter three, the nighttime conversation Jesus had with a very, another very religious, very gifted very committed, very wealthy, but unconverted Nicodemus. And remember what Nicodemus said to Jesus, good teacher. And here we go again. Jesus like, guys, stop calling me good, right? We know you're from God because no one can do what you're doing unless God was with him. And Jesus says, you know what? Let's just get right to it. Unless a person is born again, cannot see the kingdom of God. And then he ends by saying, unless a person is born of water and spirit, they will never enter the kingdom of God. Water and spirit. What does that sound like? Ezekiel 36, I will sprinkle you with clean water and you'll be cleansed and I'll remove your heart of stone and put a new heart in you and put my spirit, water spirit in you as well. In other words, Jesus was saying to Nicodemus, I am what Ezekiel was pointing to. I am salvation. I'm the one that transforms. It's all found in me. You can't do anything. You need to be born again. You couldn't make yourself alive in your first birth, nor can you make yourself alive in your new birth. But, verse 27, you see it there? What a person can never do, God alone can do. You gotta remember this day by day. We were dead in our sins. We were not half dead. We were not seriously ill. We are dead. And therefore, the only hope that we have in life and in death has nothing to do with us. Has everything to do with Jesus. Listen to Sinclair Ferguson. He puts this all together in this context. Only when he, God, gives us new hearts to abandon everything for Christ will we be free from our personal forms of idolatry 
and yield to the principles of the divine kingdom. Only when he gives us a new heart will we then be willing and able to respond to Jesus and take up our cross, right? We have to take up our cross, lay down our idols. That's part of the thing and follow him. So I want you to think with me. We may be many things. We may be doing many things. But still, we can be unchanged. Unchanged. That's number one. Jesus looked around to teach. Number two, Peter spoke for, not to the group, for the group to defend. Now, as you look there, it's pretty common for Peter, right? It seems like Peter has always something to say in the group. So he says it. We can't speculate the the bent of why he said what he said because we have no way of knowing. We're not going to try to read minds and hearts. But the context is pretty clear, isn't it? Jesus, thank you for telling us about this rich young man who wasn't prepared to leave everything to follow you. However, verse 28, Jesus, we have left everything to follow you. Right? Let me get a drink here. And the Greek there lends itself to Peter saying, we left everything of everything. In other words, we didn't just leave everything. We left everything. We have sacrificed what this rich young man would not do. Now think for a minute. It's a bit overstated, right? Peter still has his house. Peter still has the stuff in his house. And Peter still has his boat. Still, the reply of Jesus is sure and it's swift. And a word of encouragement and a word of warning. The encouragement, verse 29, comes in three. First, see it there? No one is left home or brothers or sisters or mother and father and so on, right? And who will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes and brothers and sisters and mothers and so on. In other words, it's God's pledge to his genuine followers that they're going to be looked after and they're going to be cared for whether your needs are family or personal relational. I pledge to you all your needs will be met. David Livingston, a missionary who, who... suffered so much for Jesus, said this, Christ is a gentleman. He will always keep his word. That's the first encouragement. The second one is verse 30b. There will, along with all that good stuff, there will be persecutions. Literally, the word persecution means there will be those seeking to punish God's messengers with a vengeance, like a hunter trying to obliterate someone as their catch. And if you know your Bible, you know your Christian history, that has always been true of genuine followers of Jesus. People will come after you because of your devotion to Jesus. And three, the third encouragement you see at the end there, in the age to come, you will know the joy of eternal life. It's beautiful, isn't it? Great things. All your needs, relational, physical, they're going to be met. You're going to get it. (laughs) You're going to be persecuted. But don't worry because I'm going to usher you safely into heaven. And then here's the warning, verse 31. Jesus ends with another reversal, right? Many who are first will be last, and the last first. You can imagine the disciples were probably thinking, oh, yes, Jesus, we we read you here loud and clear, right? This rich young guy, he came holding his big bag of money in his hand and in his heart. He put himself first. He put himself to the front of the line. He's used to that because he's rich. He's young. He's a leader, Right? Doors are open for him. So we understand. He tried to be first, but he's last. 
in the last, that would be us, Jesus, right? Who've left everything to follow you, will be first. Fantastic. It's settled, right? So let it be written, so let it be done. We're going to be number one. Beautiful. Is that it? I hope it's not. Because those guys, if that was the line of thinking, they were depending on their works. So when Peter said, hey, we've left everything, the rich guy didn't, the reply to Jesus in verse 31 is more like, Peter, you better be careful. You better be careful, Peter. Listen to an old Puritan. This is Cramfield. Listen to what he says. The apostles must not become self-complacent because unlike the rich man, they have left all to follow Jesus. Such self-complacency would be highly dangerous. Moreover, someone who is at current a refuser of Jesus may in the future by God's mercy accept the call and even in the age to come be preferred while they, listen carefully, while they leaving all will in no way guarantee they will remain faithful. After all, Judas was one of the twelve. Paul, the apostle, was not. Now, did you hear that? There's no guarantee here. Judas is one of the twelve, and he wasn't faithful. Paul, the apostle, wasn't part of the twelve, the original, and he was. That's good, right? Especially as you move along in years, you better be careful. You better be careful. And so there you have it. This, this rich young man, unsettled in his life, despite all the things that he had going for him, which was so much, money could not quiet the question of eternity. His youth could not quiet the question of eternity. His high station in life could not question, uh, stop the question of eternity, right? His religious life could not quiet the questions of eternity, any more than a vigorous religious life that we might have can bring us peace. Oh, it could, you know, for a moment or two, we do the thing, we feel better, but then we got to go back and do it again to feel even more better. What is that? Hence the man's salvation question. Jesus, there, there's one more thing. I, let me say it like this. Jesus, is there one more thing I can do that, that might calm my fears and set me right for eternity? But he doesn't like the answer, does he? Because Jesus sets his finger on the man's covetous heart. He doesn't want to repent. He doesn't want to believe the good news. And so the man walks away sad. Now you're going to have to think, is that any of us here this morning? You're nice. You've been around a while. You've been around only for a short while. You do religious things and and you're here now. But you haven't totally surrendered, right? Right? Because Jesus did say, if you're going to follow him, you're going to have to leave everything. And everything is going to be demoted, and Jesus has to rule every part of our life, no matter what part of that life is. He's first in all things. And of course, when when we confess that we can't do that, and we repent that we can't do that, he stands in our place and does it for us. But maybe right now Jesus is putting his finger on the one thing you say to God, you cannot have this, God. You cannot have it. So Jesus not asking you, are you concerned about eternal life? He's not asking you about you keeping law. What he's saying is, okay, here's this area, and I'm going to touch it. And when I touch it, it's going to hurt. And you're going to need to give it up. 
And if you've done that, if you've actually given it up, here's how you have done it. Only by God's amazing grace and mercy. So that you can't pat yourself on the back and say, well done, Joe. Once again, well done. Or are you like this man? No salvation. You got things right this side of heaven. Everything's squared away, but only for this life, which is brief and so fragile. Loved ones, Jesus Christ said, whoever comes to me, I will never turn away. If you've never come to Jesus, Jesus' way, he welcomes you now. Let's pray. Those who will be serving communion, if we would please just make your way forward as I pray. Father, we, we would simply ask that you would make this truth, make it humble us greatly, quiet us down in some things, but animate us in other things. Bring us to worship and thanks to you for your grace in some profoundly true and some meaningful ways to the praise of your glory. For Jesus' sake.